1: This is Mandy and the F-Bomb. Hey y'all, welcome back to Mandy and the F-Bomb. On this episode, we've got Anna Futral. 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 (laughs) Close close. Um so in this episode we've got Anna Futrell and she is a friend of mine and also happens to be the executive director of Casa McLennan County. Yes. And she has been involved in foster care herself. I'm not going to tell you her story cuz that is hers, but um I am looking forward to hearing a little bit about it. Anna, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm What's really cool is that we've connected over foster care and um, nonprofit stuff, mm-hmm. but like sitting down and getting to hang out and hear each other's story is not something we've gotten to really do a ton. So, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in foster care. Well. It, was it like <laughs> like chicken or egg? Was it that you became um, involved in CASA first, or is that it
0: it's the other care? way around? Okay. It was okay. Foster care first, and then I came to my job at CASA later. Um, it kind of led me to that role at CASA, actually, because of our family story. Um, my husband and I, we got married pretty young, and then, you know, kind of had the typical baby conversations periodically in those coming years, and it just always kind of stalled out. We just thought, wait a minute, I don't, I don't know if that's the right path for us right now. Um, my husband is adopted, and so is his sister, and so that's a piece of our puzzle, um, and he would always kind of talk about well, what if we adopted someday and our conversations were someday someday um, and we just began to do some research across uh, 2012 and the someday kind of came earlier and we realized oh we need to get into this first and now um, and so we did a lot of research about adoption or foster care and at the time you know we're in our mid-20s and we're thinking oh that foster care stuff that's really scary that's that's for people that know what they're doing or have parented before and um, but but like who that's a parent I know knows what they knows anything (laughs) of what they're doing yeah and you know that now (laughs) I do now but at the time we um we talked to this particular uh social worker at a foster care agency and we just kind of left that conversation and I remember sitting in my car it was kind of late morning that we had that conversation. So I was headed back to work. I was sitting in my car and just thinking, oh shoot, (laughs) this is for us and we must jump into this and we need to go ahead and get going. And so it was just kind of a feeling of calling to a degree and uh, just realizing the huge need. And so from there, you know, we sort of stumbled through all the licensing process and and got licensed and so we were placed with two kids uh, that were siblings and our first placement was for now, at least our last placement because uh, we ended up with adopting them, and baby sister was born along the way. Um, another biological sibling, so she joined our home. So we had a, a three under three situation for a minute there. They're all very young um, and close in age, and so now they're um, six, seven, eight. Uh, and so it's been a few years since adoption day. We kind of wrote out their whole case and and now we're a family of 5 so we went from 0 to 2 to 4 and now we're a family of 5 so wow it was it was kind of a roller coaster there with a lot of babies in our home for a minute but i bet it worked out well we've we've got an open adoption with their first mom as we call her and so that's yeah. going as well as it can um it's you know kind of interesting to navigate but so far so good um and yeah we we're a unique family but to us, it's really our normal. It's your normal. It's that's our normal. Right. <laughs> and I think it's
1: amazing whether it's kids or adults, families, you get into something that you think is going to be other or different. Mm-hmm. And we adapt so quickly. Yeah. I think so.
0: That's really cool to hear. And it's, it's all just we've ever known. Yeah. Yeah. It's all we've ever known for our version of parenting yep. and family yep. is social workers and, you know, hearings and... We we joke to our kids, my husband mostly he'll say to our son, for example, I'm so good so glad you were plopped on our doorstep, you know. Yeah. And and they ha about it and it's like an inside joke and then, you yeah. know, another one, I'm so glad you were transitioned to our home in a healthy and slow manner, you know, because her story was different, for example.
1: So,
0: that's just our norm.
1: I love it. And that you have that relationship with their first mom mm-hmm. as well. Um, that's part of our story too, where we yeah. have a relationship with um some of our kids' first mom and that's been one of the hardest and most beautiful relationships that mm-hmm. I've ever been a part mm-hmm. of so i think that's really cool that that's yeah. part of your story too yeah it's and our kids are younger mm-hmm. than yours so i guess it's it's encouraging to see another family who is a few years ahead of us mm-hmm. along that journey
0: mm-hmm. cuz yeah. we've had
1: our kiddos since they were really really super young as well mhm so,
0: so they've kind of known... a different
1: story but similar in that um and that yeah kind of the, the way it looks similar and so I'm really glad that
0: you said that I didn't know that about you guys yeah. that you had a relationship with their first mom yeah she lives out of state now so it's all you know electronic basically but um we'll see how that adapts and evolves over the years. Um, you know, we intend to give our kids some autonomy and decision-making in that relationship as appropriate and as they get older, but we have yet to see, you know, what that actually will look like. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's tricky at times and especially me as the ever mom, as they call Mm -hmm. me, uh, you know, there's some identity struggles there at times, um, and just how do I explain this in a good way to my kids when they have questions and mm-hmm. we want to do right by that whole situation, but mm-hmm. we're kind of making it up as we go. So hopefully it's going all right. Yep. <laughs> There's a lot of research out there that shows that open adoptions, you know, if handled in a mature way can be very beneficial to children.
1: Yes. Yes. Which is why I think probably we're on the same page mm-hmm. about it is mm-hmm. again, like I said, it's hard and it's complicated at, time, at times, but it's also um so good it's yeah. so good yeah um good for me I think and, and good for the kids and um obviously as long as it's safe and appropriate mm-hmm. like that's the that's the road that we're gonna walk
0: mm-hmm. absolutely Yeah. absolutely yep. I love
1: that well um so we touched on CASA for just a minute, mm-hmm. but some of our listeners may not know what CASA means. Yeah, can I'll you give explain that? kind of
0: the the quick explanation of our work at CASA. Um, uh, we are here in Waco, so I work for CASA of McLennan County, but CASA is nationwide. It's all across Texas and all across our nation. So if you're hearing this and you live elsewhere, you, know, you, can, you can look into it even where you live. Um, so CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates, and we recruit, train, and then support volunteers that are just community individuals from all walks of life and they are appointed as the guardian ad litem and advocate for children in foster care they're appointed by a judge and then they walk alongside that child or children if it's a sibling group and really get to know the children and their situation um and other players in the case: attorneys, caseworkers, teachers, therapists, parents, family members, all kind of folks involved, and really get to know the situation and the children. <clears throat> excuse me, and ultimately advocate for those that child's best interest in court. Um, so we're looking at safety factors, well-being, normalcy. Are their needs being met? And then some of the big picture questions too about permanency and you know, are they able to safely return to their original parents or not? And if not, you know, what might the next plan be? Perhaps adoption or, um, you know, living with relatives or something like that. So, uh, the, the decisions are ultimately up to the judge, but the CASA advocates really provide good and informed information to the judges for them to be able to make these decisions regarding children's lives. And so, um, especially here locally, the judge really values the CASA input and information. And it's just another set of eyes on the situation. Um, we work alongside professionals like caseworkers and attorneys, and we are all working towards the same goal, you know, which is safety and permanency for children, but the CASA angle kind of adds a different um, a different additional input and information um, due to the fact that CASA can really get kind of one-on-one with these children versus the other professionals we work with. They have a lot of kids that they're serving, and so they may not be able to kind of get that depth of relationship like a CASA can. So for
1: a typical CASA,
0: mm-hmm. how many like cases would they have? Usually, just one. Okay. We have a few volunteers that will work more than one case. Um, you know, they have the time for it, and maybe they're retired, and this is really what they're spending their time on right now. But our the vast majority of our volunteers, they have one case at a time. So that may be one child, or it may be a sibling group, depending on the situation. So that really lets them deep dive into the situation um, for these kids and what they're going through, and make really informed recommendations. That is so
1: good to know. In addition to that, I don't think we touched on this. What is um, the relationship typically between, um, or guess, what, what are the expectations that
0: foster families should have of casas that may be appointed mm-hmm. to the kids in their care? Mm-hmm. For foster families, um, I. I've been there where you feel like your front door is literally a revolving door of people that need to come into your home. You know, the children's attorney, caseworkers. Is it the health inspector? Is it the fire inspector? Mm-hmm. So that's just all kind of part of the gig. And so it's it's kind of easy for, of, for foster families to kind of feel like, oh, if there's a CASA on the case, it's it's just one more person trying to Come through my door and be in my house. And um, we acknowledge that we acknowledge that foster families already have a lot that they have to adhere to and plan for and schedule. And so with our program, for sure, we really try to accommodate that. Um, as casas, you know, we are obligated to see these children in their placement, certain increments of time. And so we have to come to your house if you're the foster family. Yeah. Um, but we will do our absolute best to accommodate schedules and timing and and that type of thing. Um, and then when we do come, you know we're we're looking for, Uh, you know, does the home appear safe and, you know, clean, but we're not the health inspector either. Like that's, we're not dipping into some of those other roles and trying to duplicate. Um, if the CASA is really in the home, they're, they're there to really visit with the child, visit with you as a caregiver, um, have some good conversations about how the child's doing in care and gather that information so that we can advocate well for these children. So I guess in this vein, I'd like to delineate roles just
1: a little Mm -hmm. bit. So um, when a child is removed from a home Mm -hmm. and placed into foster care, be it with a relative or Mm -hmm. um, a foster family, that foster family's role is to care for the children in their home and make sure that their um, well-being and kind of the holistic care of that child is being taken care of as best they can. Mm -hmm. So this is medical appointments, so foster families um, have medical consent, and this is um, mental health and this is kind of everyday things. Mm. Yep. Okay. Going to school, kind of managing. That's right. Schoolwork and yes. so and this is. I feel like this is a good conversation for listeners that may not be familiar with foster Absolutely. care. So that is the role of um, a caregiver, being be it a kinship or a family caregiver or a foster family. Right. Okay. So um, a caseworker, a CPS caseworker, their role is to manage the case.
0: Mm -hmm. They work for
1: the state. They work for the state, and it's to kind of manage it on both sides, how the kid is doing and how um, parents are doing. Yes. Okay, and kind of make sure that is kind of rolling on the right track. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then we've got attorney ad items. Yeah, that... Or attorneys. <laughs> it just, I feel like that depends sometimes.
0: So That gets confusing sometimes with CASA because... Exactly.
1: That's what I was going to kind of get into. Yeah.
0: Every child is appointed an attorney ad litem while they're in foster care. So that is that child's attorney. And that child, unless... Or that attorney, unless CASA comes into the scene, is kind of advocating... They basically have a dual role. They're the guardian ad litem and the attorney ad litem. So... Which I've always been a
1: little bit like... How does that work? Because the guardian ad litem, be it a CASA or if they have a guardian, Mm -hmm. um, their role is to advocate for what's in the best interest of the child. That's correct. Not what the child necessarily wants, Mm -hmm. but what is in their true best interest. Where attorneys, typically their role is to advocate for what their client wants. And in this case, a client is a child. And obviously like babies or something, like they wouldn't necessarily. um, can't vocalize what their wishes are. I'm I'm thinking about older kiddos. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, I want to make sure that we have like that line of delineation for listeners that um, sometimes those roles overlap where attorneys are their attorneys and their guardians. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like that could get a little bit complicated sometimes. Um, But also that there's a difference between a CASA. And an attorney, and they're advocating, if there's a cost in an attorney, hopefully what they're advocating for is the same thing, right? Right. We hope that it jives. You hope that it meshes, and it's the same thing. And everything
0: looks kind of more clear-cut for these children
1: is the hope. That's right, but I would imagine, and I've never been involved with a case with an older child um, that would be able to advocate for themselves and let them, I guess, let their attorneys um, or attorney know what they Mm -hmm. want. Mm Mm-hmm. So does that happen sometimes where attorneys are asking the court for exactly what their client, the child, is asking for, and the CASA may
0: think that, oh, I really don't think that that's in the child's best interest. Yeah. Let me kind of give an example of, you know, say there's a child that's 14. If it's it's little bitty kids, you might kind of think, well, they don't quite understand this whole situation, but... A child over age, say, 12 or so, you know, they they kind of know more what's going on. So let's say it's a child that's a teen. They have their attorney and that's trying to operate in that dual role of advocating for what their client wants and advocating for the best interest of their child or the, of their client. If this child is saying, I want to return home to my mom and dad, that is my wish. That attorney is obligated to state that in court even if that attorney can see based on the situation that may not be safe for this child so attorneys may be in conflict in that dual role and that's where they'll ask for casa often um, and will split that role so that that child now has an attorney that is advocating for what their client wants which may be i want to go home to mom and dad and the casa can look at the situation from a separate angle and acknowledge that child's wishes and factor that in to what we're considering. Mm-hmm. But the CASA can then advocate for the true best interest of that child. And if it looks like the, the best thing for that child maybe isn't to go home, if it's not yet safe, then CASA can advocate for that. And so it provides the judge the separated views of the situation to consider and then make a decision.
1: That's, thank you for that information. That's so good to know. And I think that that's a good understanding of what's yeah. going on. Um, one one role I guess we probably haven't touched on is case managers. Mm-hmm. And so, if um, there are a couple different ways that a family can get involved in foster care, and one of them is getting licensed through CPS, and mm-hmm. in that case, you yep. would have
0: that's only we did. a
1: CPS caseworker. That's what you did, okay? Yep. And I went the other route, and that's yep. cool to talk to to talk about as well. Is we went through an agency. And, um, an a- agencies are called, um, CPAs or child placing agencies. And, um, there are several different ones and whatever kind of area that you are in, you probably have a local CPA that you can reach out to. And so that's, mm-hmm. again, that's one of those things that I would just go to Mr. Google yeah, and absolutely. ask Google, like, what are, you know, top CPAs in my area And learn from them. Sometimes the best route to go is to get licensed through CPS. And sometimes people choose to go through agencies. And whenever you have an agency that you're licensing through, um, you have a case manager. And so they are kind of your go-to as well. And from what I've seen, you can let me know if I'm wrong here, but my understanding has been that um, caseworkers pretty much just deal with um, how the case is going. Right. And making sure things are kind of rolling along, mm-hmm. okay. And case managers, um, whenever it's done right, um, they are there to kind of be there for the the families that are licensed. So, like, yes, how's it going? Let me help you out with this. Um, here are some trainings that you may want to do. Um, hey, don't forget to get your fire extinguishers mm-hmm. expect, expect,
0: inspected stuff mm-hmm. like that. And that's honestly how it worked directly via CPS as well. It was just two different departments that we were licensed and monitored as a foster home through their foster and adoptive home, you know, area of CPS, and then there's a different department and it's the caseworkers for the children and families and so we had the caseworker that any child in foster care is going to have you know the the worker assigned to their case and then we also had a worker and we kind of teased that she was she was our social worker as a family. (laughs) And we joke sometimes we're like, yeah, when she comes to her home, it's free therapy. And, you know, cause she was there to support us as a home, as a foster family. Um, She knew about what was going on in our case because it related to our situation and how we were doing, but it wasn't her job to manage the nitty gritty of the case. Mm -hmm. Her job was to um, monitor and support us as a licensed home. And so, you know, some of her visits were like, felt more like you know, checking, checking things out and looking at medicine logs and, you know, some of that kind of stuff, um, looking at the fire extinguisher. Um, but we'd also just have conversations. And so that yeah. was helpful because we were brand new to the whole scene. So some of it was her just explaining mm-hmm. the ins and outs and what we need to do and some of the, the, you know, structure and rules we may need to follow and stuff like that. It's one of those so. things
1: you just don't know what you don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And, I'm sure like going license, license, licensing through CPS um, was a little bit similar to licensing through an agency in that Mm -hmm. there are trainings to do and you can ask questions and you feel like you are getting really prepared and you are to the best of your ability and to the best of their ability to train you. But then you get down into it and you just realize, oh my gosh, like I didn't even know I needed to ask these questions or that I would be feeling these feelings Mm -hmm. or
0: encountering this situation. And every child in every situation is going to be different. Yes. So even for folks that have had multiple placements, um, which, you know, was not our story, but even across multiple placements, you're going to have different different aspects of the case or the -hmm. child's story that you have to kind of roll with the punches. And there's a lot of learning as you go. Yes.
1: I know for us, um, we had a sibling group of three, Mm -hmm. but they were placed with us in different times, a little bit like Mm -hmm. um, your youngest coming to you later. Mm -hmm. So um, they were placed with us at different times. And so they were separate cases. And even though it was the same, um, coming from the same family, every single case was different. Mm -hmm. And so... Just navigating that as well.
0: So yeah. that's, and your, there's more hearings and appointments and all that stuff too. And visits and <laughs> yep.
1: therapies and yep.
0: all the things. Been there. Yep.
1: I know. I know yep. you have.
0: Man. I think it's also important. You know, we've talked about some of the official type roles and uh, responsibilities in a case, but one thing that we did, and I'm so glad we did, was we really tried to surround ourselves with some of the the non-official people, meaning other foster parents or even just people in our life that were willing to help us out. You know, we we kind of set up some individuals as babysitters and we relied on our church heavily in the early days. And um, that was incredibly helpful to us. There were some folks that didn't know the first thing about foster care, but they really did jump in with us in just life. And so that's something that I encourage folks if they're considering getting into foster care or already there, Uh, It's never too late to really try to kind of surround yourself with your team of just whoever it is in your life that's going to be a support for you. To circle the wagon. Yes. I I feel like that's
1: something that I'm so glad you brought that up because in a previous episode, we kind of talked about this as Mm -hmm. well that not everybody needs to be a foster parent. Not every family needs to be a foster family. And Mm -hmm. certainly, we definitely need more families going, hey, I think that is my role. But we also need the wider community mm-hmm. going, I'm going to step into my right thing, whatever that right thing is for you. I, I've heard a story um, from from another area and one, one businesses or he's a business owner, his right thing is that he owns a barbecue place mm-hmm. and families that are involved in foster care can reach out to him and go, hey. We are a foster family and they will get a meal free. And sometimes that is on the day of placement. Like we've been so busy, like we right. are so exhausted, like we definitely need a meal today. And sometimes it's, you know, weeks or months later mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, man, like we've just been running around to all these appointments and we could really use someone to help us out with a dinner tonight. Yeah, The needs will ebb and flow.
0: Yes. A placement at the very beginning is just hands down going to be a little chaotic. Yes. (laughs) A child is coming to your home. You're getting to know each other. You're meeting physical needs, you know, with gathering clothes or whatever that they need. And so that is clearly a, a place where some people can jump in. But then there can be seasons where things get a little stressful or challenging, even, you know, compared to seasons where you feel like, oh, we got this. Yeah. So it, it ebbs and flows. And so it's good to kind of surround yourself with people that are ready to jump in, even in the later times. You know, it's if you're trying to help out foster families, don't, you know, don't think, oh, you, you've you been out this six months. You know, why do you need my help anymore? It just it, it can just be challenging yeah. with ups and downs the whole time.
1: Well, and sometimes I would say that kiddos that have come from hard places, sometimes there's an, adjust, an adjustment period Oh yes, where they have been through some hard things plus the trauma of being placed in a stranger's home. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to figure things out. And so maybe they're not having any hard behaviors at first, mm-hmm. but then they feel safe enough to, to kind of them. express their hard things and yeah. that comes out in behaviors. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, and I would... I guess what I'm I'm leading to is sometimes whenever um, someone is experiencing adding a child to their family through pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, there man, there is nine months to prepare. There mm-hmm. is um, time for everyone to get excited, and they know um, the expectation is at the beginning things are going to be really hard, so you're going to need meals, and you're going to mm-hmm. need help with this, and you're going to – and I feel like sometimes foster families, um, kinship families – um, especially ones that have been doing this for a while, and maybe are on kid five or fifteen right. or twenty-five, people just kind of assume like, ah, you got, you got this. this now. Right. And the truth is, every single case is different, mm-hmm. and it is still, especially initially, chaotic. You got to kind of restart over, yeah, a complete, completely new restart. Mm-hmm. So having that community to come around and provide some holistic care. With some longevity too. With it, some yes. longevity, yes, ma'am, is so valuable. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, I think sometimes people may discount what they would be able to
0: offer is not enough. Mm-hmm. And, and here's I, the
1: thing: I feel like if you don't know if it is enough, ask. Yeah. Just ask them yeah. what they need.
0: That's something I realized in hindsight, and I've talked to some of my close friends, you know, in the years past that they acknowledged when, when the children were placed with us originally, they acknowledged, oh, this is a big deal. This, this sounds stressful. They didn't know how to jump in or how to help. And so when I see other people kind of in those situations, I've kind of learned to, to switch up my language from just like, I guess, let me know if I can help to like, what can I do for you right now Mm -hmm. and ongoingly and try to be clear. And so I'd also encourage people, if you're the one down in those trenches of the some of the chaos and stress, you have to ask for help. That's right. You have to. I pride myself on being a pretty self-sufficient person that keeps it together. And, I mean, some of those early days our, our church jumped in. They did a sign-up genius. And because um, part of it, at the time my husband was running a urban youth program and was working till 8 p.m., four nights a week. And so I, it was me and two babies all of a sudden in the evenings, we had daycare, but in the evenings I was by myself. We didn't have all the stuff we needed quite yet. You know, we got mm-hmm. to that point a little later. So our church literally sent somebody or a couple people every evening. They met me at the house when I was rolling in with two babies from daycare and they didn't leave until they were asleep or my husband got home and they brought food and they made me go sit and eat while they kind of dealt with babies. And I remember uh, there was one point I was sitting at our table. I was eating food that somebody else brought me because I I just was not eating enough because <laughs> I was just so busy. Um, they made me sit down and eat dinner. And it was, a, it was a couple from our church. And, you know, I was acquainted with them, but we were not close to them. And he was on the floor with the babies and she was folding my laundry in my room, you know, and I kind of was thinking like, this is barely an acquaintance and she's folding my underwear. I need to be okay with this. Like, this is what I need right now. And I'm eating the food that they brought to me. And so you have to be willing to Mm -hmm. ask for help and accept help when it's offered to you. And we Mm -hmm. got to a place of more normalcy. And we got to a place where we told them essentially, I'm good. Yeah. I don't need someone every evening now. And I'm excited about that. We are to a point now where I've got this for now at least. But then there were different seasons where we called them back. And that was okay too.
1: Yeah. I, gosh, I love that. I love that you have that community. And that's something that I've seen um, working with foster families, Mm -hmm. that sometimes it's community, Mm -hmm. not even sometimes, almost all the time. It's community that makes the difference. I know um, because you work with foster care that the truth is that we've got foster families that are only typically fostering for a year Mm -hmm. and then that's it. Because it is hard. Because it's hard and people get burnt out and people, um, good, well-meaning people, maybe don't have appropriate expectations. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's not even their fault Mm -hmm. that they don't have appropriate expectations of what foster care is going to look like and feel like and what the result might be. Right.
0: And I think it's good for, you know, things like this podcast to be realistic about that. You know, I've said a couple things that I'm like, oh shoot, maybe that's going to scare somebody off from foster care. But I'd I'd almost rather they really have an accurate picture of it so they can make their own informed decision of whether it's something that their family can get into.
1: That's right. That's right. So all that to say is community is just everything. Community Mm -hmm. is everything. And so being able to reach out to community is huge but also if um your right thing is not to be a licensed foster family there are other ways to serve oh yes there are so many other ways to serve be the and lady that was folding, folding my laundry, folding laundry. <laughs> yes it might be folding. and laundry. made me eat food <laughs> <laughs> Anna you're gonna sit down and you're gonna eat some dinner <laughs> and I'm sure that never left you that I mean it you're never talking will. about it now
0: yeah I mean those early days were some of the most impactful, and also just some of the hardest days of my entire life. And um, it was so much new all of a sudden. Uh, I mean, you know, we got an hour and a half notice, and then two kids were being dropped off in our home. Um, and we kind of joke, we're like, what was the state of Texas thinking? You know, <laughs> dropping some babies in us, like our house when we're like 24 years old. <laughs> but here we are, and we made it through because of some of the folks that really rallied around us. Man,
1: thank you for sharing that story. I really do feel big about community Mm -hmm. and the value of community support. I know right now there's a capacity Mm -hmm. thing going on in Texas where we really just, I guess bottom line is that there are not enough places to put kids. Correct. Um, Whether it's homes or facilities or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, there are not enough places to put kids in. The idea that the only way you can affect, in a positive way, affect foster care and children that are in foster care is by being a foster family is actually hurting. Because I'd agree. whenever you think it's all or nothing, then if you are not at a place
0: when you're ready to jump in, then it's going to be nothing. But if you do something else, you could... Become all or nothing for another family. That's right. If you rally around them, you could be the reason that they are successful as a foster family or continue to be a foster family. That's right.
1: That's right. And what the goal is, um, I would say, as a foster family, is not necessarily – having the outcome that you would imagine. And for some foster families, that is, we are going to get to a successful reunification mm-hmm. and it's going to be great. And for some families, that is going to be, we are going to adopt at some point. I would say that the goal is to go in knowing you have no idea how it's going to go. That's exactly how we got right? into it. Right? You No idea how it's <laughs> going to go. Give us whoever needs us. And just love on those kiddos. Yes, And it's It's never going to be easier to do something that is unknown, but having the support of your community Mm -hmm. is so beneficial and integral to the outcome. And I would say the outcome that I hope foster families, kinship families share is safety and permanency Mm -hmm. um, for kids in
0: care. Which can look so many different ways. So many different ways. For different children.
1: That's right, but... If we've got foster families that are being burnt out because they, can you imagine if you didn't have that community of support and then you have. I would have
0: been thinking, what have we gotten ourselves into? Which there was a little bit of that thought. Of course. But it would have been so much worse.
1: But I just, I had a guest on recently that was talking about how she didn't know any other families that was doing what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And she actually um, put in her 30 days notice for their very first placement Because she couldn't handle it all. Mm -hmm. And she had no idea. And she carries, um, which is completely understandable, lots of like regret because she didn't realize Um, by her saying yes and not having the support that she needed and not being really ready for what she was getting into that she added to mm, those kids trauma. And I think that's something to recognize, too, is that, like you said, you could be just by bringing meals or folding laundry or mowing or the yard, mowing or, the yard yeah. or going I can babysit the kids mm-hmm. y'all go out for a date night you could be the difference between um kiddos having a sustained and consistent experience while yes. they are in foster care or being re-traumatized because that the foster family that they're in doesn't isn't doesn't have the support that they need to continue yes. on this Absolutely.
0: journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those things I could see somebody who's trying to jump into some of those things thinking, well, that's not going to help that much if I just got to go mow their yard. Like that doesn't mean anything to a child. The reality is that child may not have a clue that the yard even got mowed or not. They don't care, yeah. especially if they're little. But to that family who is taking care of that child, it can mean the world. That's right. Um, especially if, if it's something that you just kinda jump in and that's right. Even if the family doesn't know how to ask for what they need, Yeah. Just try to do something. Cause it be a little bit pushy. It's valuable
1: <laughs> to go, they may not know what to do, but my community sees me. They value me. They see that this is a hard thing that I'm doing and they support me. Yeah.
0: Well and a lot of what is needed, especially in the early days when a child's placed in your home is focused to be able to focus on that child and their needs. And so then it can kind of leave some of the other main mundane life stuff like dishes and mowing that doesn't get done, but then that does add to the stress. So if, if you're just shoring up some of the mundane life stuff, that can be huge because it can free up that family to really focus on that child and what they need and getting to know them and just really trying to set some groundwork for a successful placement.
1: Exactly. I love. I love this. Yes. So, before we wrap up, okay. So this is the podcast is Mandy and the F. Right. Okay. Because I feel like sometimes it's the things that wreck us, right, mm-hmm. that show us what our purpose really is and really fulfill us and show us what we can handle and who we can be. They change us. Mm-hmm. So. I feel like sometimes that's foster care. I want to know when your F-bomb moment was. When did you know <laughs> hmm. that because of foster care, you would never, never be the same again?
0: Was it a moment? Hmm. Was it a
1: season? Um,
0: I think, well, there was that. They're always in my car. The things I'm thinking of are always, I'm staring <laughs> at my steering wheel. Um. <laughs> The first one being one that I mentioned at the beginning of this was after we talked to that particular social worker, just like, let's just learn more about foster care. And then we're sitting in my car near tears thinking, oh, shoot, we got to jump into this. So that was kind of the initial one. Just like, we're going to do this. Oh, my gosh. But at at the time across our case, hearings were held at a different location than where they are now. And it was a little little ways out of downtown. Um, they're, they're in downtown now. But so – just multiple times, there's a certain red light on MOK where you were coming back from the other court location. And every time to this day that I'm sitting there, I just kind of get overwhelmed because there were several times after hearings that I would sit and attend the hearing for our children's case at the time and just heavy stuff. Like we were rolling with it. Okay. But foster care is just so heavy at times. And, um, so there have been multiple times at that particular red light that I got a little ways away from the court that I was just in tears by the time I'm sitting at that light and probably multiple people have looked, you know, to the side in my car, like what's wrong with that lady? Um, she's always crying I know, but it's, it's like, and now to this day I, I stop at that red light and I kind of think back to those intense days and just what my children went through, what their first mom went through across the, you know, that whole case. And, um, So, you know, now some of it's grateful, gratefulness, um, but because things are doing better for them and for her, which is good. Um, But back then it was, it was just kind of the heaviness of foster care. And so I think random times sitting in my car in tears is (laughs) my F-bomb moments spotted around town. Um, So I don't have that particular car anymore, but... (laughs) That steering wheel, I'm picturing it now, just staring at my steering wheel in tears. Those moments where it
1: just the story, the reality of it kind of gets yes, to you. It's the yeah.
0: reality that I can sit in court and be a capable, you know, foster parent and um, take in information, but then it's it's sort of in the quiet moments, like sitting in your car, that it can really crash in.
1: Mm. Yeah,
0: I get that. But here we are, and we we did it, and we made it through the case, and everything's really stable and good now.
1: I'm so glad that that's your story. Yeah, me too. I'm so glad that that's your story. Me too. Well, thank you so much for coming thank on. You. I really appreciate it, and I hope we get to have you again. Thanks. Mandy and the F-Bomb is produced by Rogue Media. Make sure to like and follow us on social media, and you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts or at roguemedianetwork.com.
0: This is